Good evening, Rua Church. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And we will be uh, in verse 17 this week of Luke chapter 10. And once you have found that text uh, in your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and on scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes who see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. As can be seated. If I was to uh, categorize this text uh, in uh, any number of different ways, there's uh, probably about 10 different ways you could uh, preach and proclaim the truths in this text. In fact, um, as you were reading, you probably noticed all of the, the, the richness and all of the, the beauty uh, present in these verses. Um, and if I had the uh, willpower to do so and perhaps the patience, we might spend several weeks just here in this passage uh, working through the verses slowly and, and trying to understand all of what is in the text. Uh, but as, as it is, uh, we don't have that much time uh, to spend just in these verses. We have to continue to move through Luke's gospel. Um, and so uh, while there are so many things that can be preached from this text, um, I just want to put just one idea in front of you uh, for tonight's focus and uh, uh, trust that that will be uh, edifying and encouraging to you. And the, the central idea that I want to put in front of you tonight is the idea of the power struggle uh, that you see going on in this text, uh, the power struggle that is present between the forces of darkness and the kingdom of God. If you were to uh, think about your life and the people that you know, uh, perhaps even about your own uh, struggles with sin uh, and the people that you know that are uh, in bondage to sin, participate, uh, possibly participating in uh, self-harm or uh, uh, self-activities uh, uh, that hurt themselves and hurt their uh, person and, and damage their relationships. If you were to think about all of, the, all of the things that people struggle with in this world, all of the pain that they experience, uh, you might uh, ask the question or you might uh, be tempted to think of a myriad of solutions uh, to various problems that people face. If you think about uh, your own sin, for example, I might ask you, what is the one thing that you would need in order to stop sinning? What is the one thing that, uh, that you could have that would prevent sin in your life, that would uh, cut it off and stop you from participating in it? Uh, you might ask the same question about other people that you know, loved ones that you know who uh, not only uh, participate in sin, but uh, even love that sin and enjoy it and see nothing wrong with it. Uh, what is the one thing that you could give that person that would get them to see sin for what it is and stop their engagement in it? I submit to you that this text tells us that the root thing that you can give anyone is the power to overcome that sin. Information and knowledge about sin uh, are going to fall short in the life of someone uh, who is in bondage to sin. Uh, information about sin is going to fall short in your own life as you war against sin. The only thing that you have that can overcome sin is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that we have access to that can break the power of sin. 
And that's what you see here in this text, the power struggle between the forces of darkness and the kingdom of God. And it's, it truly is a power struggle. It's not just an information war. It's not just a matter of uh, seeing the facts and believing the facts. It's, it's nothing like that. It, it goes deeper than that because of the condition of fallen humanity. And you see that uh, here in the text. So in verse 17, look with me at the text, and you will see the uh, verse begins to read, that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Verse 17 and 18 set out two strange but interesting statements. Uh, First, the reflection of the disciples on their recent missionary journey, and subsequently Jesus' commentary on that same missionary journey. If you remember last week, Jesus ordains the 72 out as missionaries uh, to go and preach the gospel to the places which he was about to go. And when they go, he tells them two things. One, uh, if you preach the message of peace and there is a child of peace found in the house, then stay with them and and live with them and and eat their food uh, and fellowship with them. And then go to the next town and do the same. But if you go to a city or a village and they reject the gospel, that they reject the offer of peace, you are to go into the center of that town, into the streets, uh, shake the dust off of your sandals, and let them know that they have rejected God's offer of peace. Now, uh, with that kind of 50-50 outcome, right, the, it's either this or that, There's a, those are the only two outcomes, uh, you might uh, begin to become pessimistic as to the results. I think often when we think about the going forth of the gospel into the hostile nations, uh, you might think about all of the ways in which it can go wrong. That if you go into a place where the gospel has not been proclaimed and uh, Christ has not been preached, as are all these towns and cities, uh, you might think of all of the uh, failures that they might have encountered. And Jesus certainly provides for them encountering many uh, hostilities, many oppositions, many people who are going to disagree with their message and reject the offer of peace. What's interesting, though, is the disciples still rejoice in the victory that they do obtain in their missionary journey. We're not told a number or how many people uh, the, the disciples convert or went over to Christ. All that we are told is in their reflection here in verse 17, when they return, they return with joy and they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're reflecting on the expansiveness of their power uh, over the force of darkness and they comment, it's not just that we can heal, which is what he tells them to do, but they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now the text is not clear whether this is the disciples talking about uh, performing exorcisms, uh, which would certainly be possible. We've seen that the apostles do this kind of thing. And so uh, in this era of the church, it would not be uncommon for someone to perform an exorcism and cast out a demon. This is the power that Jesus himself has. Um, But the text is a little ambiguous. Uh, It could also be referring to uh, simply the pushback of the forces of darkness into the hostile nations, the nations that don't yet know God, and the demons uh, having to retreat at the expanse and the advancement of the gospel. It could be referring to either of those things. Nevertheless, in verse 18, Jesus comments and he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is an interesting statement because uh, you might think that Jesus has totally left the conversation and he's now making a commentary about something else. And uh, you might uh, come to mind the beginning of the rebellion of Satan uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, where we find the the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. And you might say Jesus is referring to Satan's original fall from grace when he uh, participates in his cosmic rebellion. Uh, You might say that this is Jesus talking about where this uh, missionary journey is going to go in the future and how it's going to terminate in Satan's falling from, uh, from heaven and falling from power and ultimately his demise as it speaks about in the book of Revelation. But Jesus is particularly commenting on what the disciples have just shared with him, namely that the demons are subject to us in your name, and they've been proclaiming peace. And as Jesus says, says they've been proclaiming the nearness and the, the closeness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says as they go about preaching these things, and as he observes it from his perspective, as the disciples are going out and they return, as he observes it from his perspective, you see that it's Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now what all could Jesus be talking about when he says that? And there's certainly many things that he could be referring to, but he's rooting it uh, primarily in this cosmic power struggle uh, that is present all throughout the Old Testament and even uh, on the pages of the New Testament uh, between the forces of the kingdom of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, 
and the forces of the kingdom of God, the disciples of Jesus, Jesus himself, the angels, and, and the Father, all who are uh, encroaching against these evil forces. Uh, one of the things we know about the world in Jesus' day, uh, this is pre the gospel going out to the nations and the Gentiles, uh, we know that all of the nations of the world are primarily led astray. This is the dominant condition of the world. Uh, the Romans uh, don't know about God the Father and his love for the Gentiles. The uh, Jewish people have primarily abandoned their identity as God's people and have uh, adopted a system of works-based righteousness where they can curry favor with the Father. There's a very small uh, source of true faithful Judaism left. Uh, and so what you see largely is the, the kingdom of darkness having encroached on the world. You see Jesus in his earthly ministry, every person that he bumps into who seems to be remotely religious uh, seems to be rather hostile to his mission. And this is not uh, because they have true faith, it is because they have some false, deceived religion that is enslaved to the powers of darkness. And Paul even tells us this, if you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that if you look, were to survey humanity, the general condition of humanity is that humans are led astray by the powers of darkness in this world. That is the default condition of, the human, uh, of, of humankind. We are not a people who are neutral before God. We are not a people who are even functionally rational before God, where we can look at good and bad things and choose them evenly. Uh, we are a people who are enslaved by our own sin, yes, but also the deception of Satan, which is added on top of the original sin of humanity. And so it is fitting then when Jesus uh, reflects on the victories of the disciples, their preaching of the gospel into these nations that have never heard it, and him commenting that he sees Satan falling like lightning from heaven. He sees Satan losing his dominion, losing his authority, losing his power over the world. And this is something that starts in the ministry of Jesus, but it does not terminate in the ministry of Jesus. It actually continues to propagate as the church grows and goes forward. That is because the power of Satan is linked to, in this text of scripture, the deception of the nations. As Satan is allowed to deceive people away from God, people are considered to be under his, uh, under his rule, under his authority. You think about Paul, who chiefly identifies himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul is referring to his identity as being under the lordship of Jesus, as opposed to under the lordship of a worse king, a, a dark spiritual power that would be over him otherwise, or we could say the power of Satan the power of the dark evil forces in this world. You think about this first missionary journey, uh, Jesus has sent his disciples out into a target-rich environment. What that means is that every single place that they go to is a place where the gospel has not yet been preached, where Jesus is not yet known, and where when they go into these nations, into these places, there's going to be people guaranteed who have never heard the gospel before. It's a target-rich environment. Every single person is possible for repentance and belief in Christ. He has sent them out into a, uh, a place surrounded by enemies, but another way of looking at that is that he's sending them out into a place that is ripe for harvest, ripe for the taking. He sent them out into a target-rich environment. And he, he comments on this missionary journey saying, Satan fell like lightning from heaven. And then he continues this commentary in verse 19, where he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and on scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 19 uh, seems to be juxtaposed with, let's say, the experience of the disciples and of the early church. Verse 19 says that nothing will hurt the disciples and that Jesus has given them power over the enemy, over all the uh, forces of the enemy. And if you just compare that with, let's say, I don't know, the opening chapters of Acts where uh, James is killed, uh, and shortly after that, the church is kicked out of Jerusalem, and shortly after that, you see uh, Paul on the, on the run for his life from the Jewish people, uh, we know that certainly it is the case that they do face physical affliction in their evangelism. So doesn't that immediately refute verse 19 where Jesus says that nothing will hurt them? Well, uh, we could uh, say that in one sense, Jesus is talking about his providence over his people, that nothing will hurt them apart from what he allows into their life. There's nothing that can happen to them apart from his gracious will. 
the reason that I have for putting it in that context is in verse 19, uh, you see that phrase, he gives them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And you might be wondering, why does he say that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, Uh, Moses is talking about the people of God and their exodus into the wilderness and God's providential protection over them. And he refers to their being kept by God in the wilderness in these terms. He says, the God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and its scorpions. This is Moses talking about God's providential protection of his people in the wilderness. uh, One way of saying it is he's meeting all their felt needs that they're going into the wilderness, there's no water, there's no food, there's all kinds of things that could attack them and defeat them. And what does God do? He protects them as being his people from all these things. Now, if you read the accounts of the Israelites, that doesn't mean that they don't die or that they don't suffer or that there's never any moment of time in which they're uh, in perfect comfort. Uh, We know that they have many things that they need, such as daily food. Uh, We know that they need to work hard uh, to till the ground, to have any kind of uh, animals or, or harvest. Uh, We know that they have enemies all around them. They're not in any means in a comfortable situation. But when Moses reflects on their whole time in the wilderness, he talks about God who protected them from these serpents and scorpions. He protected them from all of the things in this world that were essentially out against them that could overthrow them. He protects them from it. And similarly, Jesus uses that same language here where he says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. To be uh, very uh, prominent in the book of Job, where you see Job who is God's righteous individual, and yet God permits a great many evil things to happen to Job. Uh, God allows uh, the accuser to go to Job and afflict him first physically, uh, and then uh, with his his friends going around him and giving him no comfort at all. Uh, You have Job uh, having great many afflictions in that book, Uh, But he can rightly say, and Job rightly does say, that nothing happens apart from God's hand to him. There's nothing that can hurt him apart from God allowing it. And there's a certain comfort in that for the people of God, that there's nothing that could possibly hurt them apart from his providence. And the reason that's still comforting is because God is a good God who loves his people and who has their best interest at heart, which means anything that does, let's say, physically assail them in this life, is something that he has permitted into their life. It's nothing that happens apart from his good grace. Nothing happens apart from his power. The disciples can go out with comfort. The apostles can go out with comfort, knowing that there's nothing that could hurt them apart from the will of God in their life. There's nothing that can assail them apart from what Jesus permits into their life. And so he's given them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, Uh, He's given them uh, authority over these spiritual forces and authority over anything that will assail them. Uh, One way that uh, one of my favorite commenters on this text, Alistair Begg, says it is, uh, essentially, you're immortal until the work that you have to do is done. There's nothing that can happen to you in God's providence apart from your work being done. You can't die before God is done with you. There's nothing that can assail you apart from God having your work first finished. So there's nothing that can happen to you apart from God willing it. And there's a certain amount of comfort in that. That doesn't resolve, I think, every tension that we might feel from the afflictions of this life, but it certainly does provide us at least one layer of protection, one layer of comfort, which is that God is overall, and God is the one who is in charge of whatever does or does not afflict us. You see, though, in verse 20, Jesus is going to pivot. He's just told them about all of God's providence, all of their, their victory and their rejoicing, And he's going to pivot and he's going to tell them, don't rejoice primarily in this. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we might say that this is uh, the grounds or the foundation of the joy of the disciples. Their joy should not primarily be rooted in the success or failure of their ministry. Their joy should not primarily be rooted in the success or the failure of their own Uh, their own work, their own holiness, their own sanctification. What should be the grounds and the foundation of their joy? Jesus says it should be because their names are written in heaven. Now, if you're reading scripture and you come across a statement like this and you don't know what it means, uh, one of the things that's helpful is looking at other passages of scripture that use the same kind of language. 
And if uh, you're familiar with uh, the New Testament, the book of Revelation, there's this thing that happens right at the end of the book where you have uh, the opening of the Lamb's book of life and the looking into that book to see all of the works that people have done. And if your name is written in the book of life, you are spared the judgment. And if your name is not found in that book, you are not spared that final judgment. And this is likely what Jesus is here referring to, that they should not rejoice in the spiritual victories over the enemies in this life. They should ultimately rejoice in this one singular thing, that they have been saved by God for his good pleasure, that their names are written in heaven. And we might ask a myriad of questions at this point. Uh, How do they know? Uh, What is the, uh, how could they be confident that their names are written in heaven? There's so many questions that accompany this theologically. Uh, But what is true is that Jesus is telling them the grounds and the foundation of their rejoicing, the grounds and the the foundation of their comfort, should be rooted in their salvation, not in their work. And this is something that I think we often need to remind ourselves of. I think the world, especially in our day and age, has convinced us, and largely uh, it's a positive message that you, how you work matters, your identity matters, and your identity and your work are linked together. And that if you have a job that is not contributing to society, maybe you're worth less. Or if you have a job that is contributing to society, you can bolster your ego, bolster your accolades, and bolster your reputation. And we think even in in Christian circles like this, if we have a successful ministry, or we have discipled a lot of people, or if we've read a lot of the Bible, that we can rejoice in these accolades, these things that we have done, uh, because these are all good things to do. And Jesus is saying, essentially, don't let your joy be founded in any kind of accolade that goes beyond this primary joy, which is that your name is written in heaven or that, you have been ple- that God has been pleased to redeem you. If you are chosen by God and you are saved, this is the, the grounds and the sub and substance of all your rejoicing. You can never get beyond this. Think about the Apostle Paul and when he talks about his own, uh, his own life. His joy is never grounded in the success or the failure of his mission. His joy is never grounded uh, in, in how things are going at that current moment. Because if it was, he would, he would be struggling for joy 90% of the time. Where his joy is grounded in is in God's pleasure to have saved him as a sinner. He, he reflects on this. He says, I am the chief of sinners, unworthy to be saved, and yet I was saved. And so we know that Paul, this is where Paul's joy stems from. This is where it comes from. This is, this is where all disciples' joy should come from. Because if our joy doesn't come from this chief identity, we instantly default into a works-based means of salvation. We instantly default into looking at our righteousness and our joy uh, before God as being linked to our actions or our activity or possibly our own holiness and sanctification and those, those are all good things. And, and what the disciples have here is a good source of joy that they, have, uh, that they have had victory over the demons. It's a good source of joy. But it shouldn't be the foundation of their joy. Let's say that they go on a losing streak for a while and they don't have any success. They're, they're preaching the gospel and no one's coming to faith. Should they then be joyless? Or should they still have joy? I might ask you the same kind of question. Let's say you're in your Christian walk and you have, uh, you have just you know, your day-to-day life, your grind, you're walking things out, you're reading God's word, uh, but maybe it's, you're going through a season where it's, it's making a lot less sense why and how God is good right now, or what am I to do with my life, or uh, you're discipling someone and it's not going how you want it to go, or maybe you yourself are not having the victory over sin that you think you should be having. Does that at all link to your means of rejoicing in God. If it does, it affects your joy. You might want to go back to the source and grounds of your joy, which is the gospel. The gospel is unmerited, unearned. We cannot in any way improve our disposition before God by our actions or in any way add to the righteousness of Christ. So our joy should be, let's say, at at least at a base level, constant kind of joy. We can add to that on, uh, with success and with boasting and with, with much joy at the, the manifest work of Jesus in this world, but our baseline statement of rejoicing in all things is something that we're commanded to do as Christians. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. We can be commanded to do this because our source of joy is not how circumstances are going or how our actions are doing. 
Our joy is in our salvation, which is fixed and unchanging and the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, uh, the security of that takes our joy outside of ourselves and outside of our own actions and puts it squarely on God's activity, which is a sure place to derive constant joy from. God's activity, God's action is a sure foundation for our joy. One of the things uh, we might see in this text is that although the disciples have this amazing target-rich environment ministry where they go out and they, they preach the gospel and people are coming to faith uh, and Satan is, is, is losing his power over the world, you see all these things happening and Jesus has to remind them at the peak of this high, hey, by the way, remember the source of your joy is not the success of your ministry. The source of your joy is not how things are going right now. The source of your joy is your initial salvation. That's the source of your joy. Nevertheless, uh, we know that Jesus, when he sends his disciples out onto this uh, ministry to go, to go and preach the kingdom of God, he doesn't send them into a questionable situation. Uh, the way that uh, Calvin says it is, when Christ commands his gospel should be preached, he did not at all attempt it a matter of doubtful result. Rather, he foresaw the approaching ruin of Satan. When we go into the ministry, uh, when we go into our workplace, when we go and we share the gospel with friends, coworkers, whoever we know, uh, we do not go forward in some way doubtfully, 50-50, is this going to work, is this not going to work? That's not how we go. Uh, we go forth with a certain kind of confidence because God would not commission us to do something that would fail. When God says, go forth into all the earth and make disciples, he's commissioning us to do something that will approach the ruin of Satan. It will lead to his ultimate demise. The gospel going forward is the breaking of Satan's power. And that's an amazing reality to let us think about. Because if, if you were to ask the question, what is the number one thing that you could get in this world and maybe give to others that could fix their life in an instant, what is that thing? And the response that we should all have is it's the gospel. If you have the gospel and you understand the gospel, it breaks the power of sin over your life, which resolves relationships, it fixes marriages, it, it has all kinds of tangible effects in this world, but it's rooted in the fact that sin's power has been broken. And so it is with every single thing that afflicts our society. And there are so many good things that our world wants to convince us of as being uh, things that we could do and that will fix our society. Uh, potentially better governmental structures, uh, better social services, better education. There's, there's a whole host of things that we could think about as possibly being the solution for our broken society. And at the end of the day, we have to say to all of those things, well, because the source of the problem is a power issue, a, a, an enslavement to sin, the solution is freedom from that sin. The solution to uh, a enslavement to sin is, is freedom from that sin. That's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to proclaim liberty to the captives and to give sight to the blind and to proclaim the Lord's favor, to offer peace. And this is what all people need, peace before God. There's this uh, illustration of this idea if you, if you uh, are a fan at all of Lord of the Rings or possibly maybe you've just seen the movies, you haven't read the books, it'll work the same. There's this character in the movie, it's the second movie, and he is the king of Rohan. And his issue is that he knows what, is, what side he's fighting on. He's fighting against Sauron and with the forces of, uh, of the fellowship. But his problem, even though he is hearing all the same information and he's getting all the same insight and advice and he sees the imposing problem, his, his main issue is the fact that he's got this advisor whispering into his ear called Wormtongue who won't allow him to see things as they really are. The, the King of Rohan hears that uh, if his forces come and join the forces of the fellowship, that they might have a chance against the forces of darkness. And he hears that and he says, it's too late for me to join the fight. And he's this old decrepit man. And uh, in the movie, they, they paint this out as he looks like some sickly hundred year old. And what happens in the movie is Wormtongue first needs to be broken. His power over the king needs to be defeated before the king can respond in any kind of logical way. The information hasn't changed. The king hasn't gotten any kind of new revelation. But what happened is Wormtongue's power over the king needs to be broken before the king can act on any of the information that he's just been given. And it totally changes the outcome. It actually leads to the ultimate demise of the forces of darkness. And it's not, again, an information battle because the king actually doesn't learn any new information between Wormtongue being defeated and not. 
the only thing that happens is Wormtom's grip over the king is broken. And this is what it is like to interact with someone who's enslaved to sin. It's not a matter of teaching them the right information. It's not a matter of getting them additional self-help. It's not a matter, even if you think about your own sin, a matter of knowing more or knowing what to do or knowing how to do it. It's a matter of having the power to actually do it. The power of sin needs to be broken in your life before you can actually affect any kind of change. And what is the power to break sin? Well, Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the thing which sets us free and breaks the hold of sin over us. That is the only thing that can solve all of the things that afflict us in this life. It's a power struggle at the end of the day. And so Jesus, reflecting on all these things, comes to verse 21, and it tells us about his prayer that he offers to the Father. He says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is amazing that you see the joy of the disciples, and immediately after that in the text, the unifying idea is the joy of Christ. The joy of the disciples is rooted in uh, their name being written in heaven, and the joy of Christ is rooted in the fact that God is pleased to reveal his gospel in the way that it is being revealed. See that in the text, he's rejoicing in his father, not for being Lord of heaven and earth, even though he is that, Uh, he's rejoicing in his father for how he is pleased to reveal the gospel in this world. And you see that he hides it from the wise and he reveals it to the little children. Now this is not Jesus, uh, let's say, commending foolishness to us, that we should never gain wisdom or understanding or any kind of learning because that would be to put Jesus at odds with Proverbs, where it says you should gain much wisdom. It's not that at all. What Jesus is talking about is those who are wise and are understanding in their own sight. They rely primarily on their own reason, their own understanding, their own self-perception. They are the judge and arbiter of their universe. And God has hidden his gospel from these kinds of people. A chief among this, you can think of the Pharisees. You can also think of Judas. You can also think of uh, the rich young ruler. You can think about a whole host of characters that you meet in the Gospels who are wise in the sense that they think they have things figured out. They don't actually need God, and God is hiding his Gospel from them. And he's instead revealing it to the woman caught in adultery. He's revealing it to uh, fishermen. He's revealing it to tax collectors and sinners. He's revealing it to people of little understanding, little children. You think about Mary, who uh, is given the first, let's say, proclamation of the angel who's going to come and announce the good news of Jesus. Uh, Mary is a no one in that society. She's a nobody. She's an unmarried woman. She has no real estate, no value. She, She has no say in that culture. But God is pleased to reveal himself to her and his gospel to her. He's uh, pleased to reveal his gospel to the shepherds who keep watch over the flocks at night. And this is the Lord of heaven and earth who operates this way. And Jesus is reflecting on all this and saying, that is a marvelous testimony to who God is and what he's like. And that doesn't necessarily need to be something that we totally understand. Why wouldn't God save the wisest and the smartest in our society? Why wouldn't God uh, primarily reveal himself to those people? Because this is how he likes to work. He likes to work uh, by saving those of little understanding, the little children, and hiding himself from the wise and the learned. Now, this is the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where uh, the gospel message is a message of foolishness to this world, and it doesn't make sense. It's a stumbling block. It, it seems like folly. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God unto salvation. It's, it's a power struggle, where the, the wise and the learned are those who are wise and learned in their own eyes. Uh, you might say that they're wise and learned according to the prince of the power of the air. They know what's going on. They think they have things figured out. And the gospel goes forward, not to those individuals, but it goes forward to those who God is liberating and revealing himself to. Think about uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, He's a pagan. He's a pagan just like everyone else around him is a pagan. He doesn't have things figured out very well, but God is pleased to reveal himself to Abraham. Not to Pharaoh, but to Abraham. Pharaoh uh, arguably commands much more property, much more wealth, much more influence in the world. Uh, Maybe God would have been better off if he chose the Egyptians as his chosen people, not the Israelites. But he's pleased to do it this way, 
where he reveals himself to the weak, the foolish, the unwise, and he hides himself from those who have much power and much authority. For such was his gracious will. And he says in verse 22, this is Jesus again praying, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one who knows the son and no one knows who the son is except for the father, or who the father is except for the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Now that is quite a tight web of of logic. See if I can unwind it a little bit. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Now, this statement uh, is one that uh, there's whole systems of doctrine that you can learn and explore and and study up on. Uh, I I think the best elaboration on that statement, verse 22, the first half, uh, is just John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer prayer of Jesus, where he talks about the God, the father, who's pleased to give to him a people. And he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. You can even think about uh, texts like Daniel chapter 7 uh, or even Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The authority that was the father's is shared equally with the son. The son is, we would say, eternally co-equal with the father in both, uh, in both substance, but also in power. They're not different in any kind of way where the father is functionally over the son and the son is somehow a lesser than deity. They're equally powerful over all things because the father has been pleased to hand over his authority to the son. And then he expands this and he says, and no one knows who the son is except the father. So this is a strange thing. Uh, No one knows who the son is except the father. And then he's going to flip it and he says, or who the father is except the son. So the son and the father in his, in his own uh, revelation, their, their unity together is so tight that you cannot know the father apart from the son and you cannot know the son apart from the father. But how do you know who the father is? Uh, you have to know the son and the son is only known through whom the son chooses to reveal the father. So let me start that back at the beginning. Verse 22, all things have been handed over by my father. But no one knows who the Son is except for the Father. So God the Father has perfect knowledge of God the Son. Or God the Father, uh, it says, or who the Father is except for the Son. So no one knows the Son except for those who know the Father. But no one can know the Father except those who know the Son. Okay, then how do you know the Son? If he's the entry point into knowing this thing, how do you know who the Son is? And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, That's not himself. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. So Jesus, in his earthly ministry, as he's preaching the kingdom of God, he's not preaching about himself. He's preaching about the Father. He's revealing the Father to the people. And this is where we would say things like, uh, if you worship, uh, let's say, a a unified God, a monotheistic God, but that God is not uh, shared with Jesus, that you don't think Jesus is God, you are worshiping a different kind of God. This is why uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims do not worship the same God. Because Jesus is here saying that no one can even know who the Father is unless they know him through the means of the Son's revelation. So if you deny the Son's revelation of the Father, you are denying the Father whom Jesus is is sharing. You are denying the Father that Christians would would worship. And this is why uh, we, although we have many things in common with other monotheistic religions, uh, many moral things, many ethical things, we share those kind of bloodlines, there are some things that we do not have in common, such as the same God. We do not have the same Heavenly Father up in, uh, uh, up governing all things because that Father is only known to the Son and you can only know Him through the Son and you can only know Him through the revelation of the Son to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Now, uh, you might ask the question, well, how does the Son reveal who the Father is? Uh, if the Son is the one revealing the Father, how does the Son choose to reveal the Father? How does He do that? Well, in in one sense, you can see this just in the life of the Gospels. Jesus' earthly ministry, what does he do to proclaim the Father? He teaches in parables. He he teaches in in long illustrations. He preaches sermons. He reveals the Father through his own teaching ministry. Now, how does his teaching ministry pass itself on into future generations? Well, it's recorded. It's written down for us. That's that's one of the ways in which the the Father, who the Father is, is known to us is because the son preached about it and people wrote it down and they recorded and they safeguarded that truth. Uh, This is a a great way to preserve teaching. 
the, the written word is the means by which God has chosen to keep his revelation about himself in the world. He could have done it a number of ways. He could have sent angels continually to various generations. He could have continued to send Jesus to this world over and over again to preach. Uh, he could have constantly had a stream of apostles coming down and preaching the message. But instead of all of those things, the Father was pleased to record the revelation of himself through his written word and as it was passed on through the church. Uh, one way uh, that uh, you might think about it is if you really want someone to remember something, you might write it down for them. Uh, this is what happens uh, when my wife and I go for groceries and she really wants me to not forget to pick up something. She'll write it down for me or more than likely she'll just text it to me. But the point is if she tells me things, I'm likely to forget them. And so are all human beings. If, you, if I tell you something, you might forget it, but if I write it down for you and I give it to you, maybe you'll have a better chance of remembering. And this is one of the ways God has preserved his teaching to his church. He wrote it down and he had it written and he had it preserved. Another way that God's uh, self-disclosure is being revealed to the world uh, is through his people, that is his church. So his written word is the, the chief, dominant, clear, clear way of him revealing himself, uh, but so is his church. Uh, so uh, when you go out into a workplace and you're talking with someone and they ask you, what is this thing that you believe? Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's word on you at that moment, that's okay. You can still tell them what you believe, right? Because you are the people of God. You are one of the means in which God reveals himself to this world. You can share the gospel. You can proclaim the good news of Jesus. You can talk about sin and substitution and all of God's goodness in that. That's one of the ways Jesus reveals himself to this world. And one of the ways Jesus reveals who the Father is to this world. And lastly, you see this uh, throughout the rest of the testimony of Scripture, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Now, the revelation of the Holy Spirit uh, is most clearly explained in John chapter 3. Uh, but even in, in Luke's gospel, you see it here and there where uh, Jesus is going out into the world and he's preaching the gospel and he's going on to all different towns and there's varying kinds of responses to his ministry. Now, how can we explain those various responses uh, aside from the, the Spirit's active or, or absence of his work? If the Spirit is actively at work in the heart of someone, they respond favorably to the gospel and if he's not, they don't. Why? Because as we said in the beginning, this text is primarily about a power struggle, a cosmic power struggle, which means that when the gospel goes out, it's, it's a message of salvation, but it's a message that cannot be really heard, not be truly understood, not be uh, received and responded to, apart from a, mir a miraculous renewal of the heart and the mind. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Uh, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. You can't even see it. You can't make sense of it, you can't hear it, you can't understand it, you can't behold it unless you've been born again. Uh, if, if you don't accept that, one of the, then you have to conclude that the thing that separates uh, sinners from believers uh, is, is nothing more than the decision of the person themselves. Uh, one of the church's uh, revivalists, in the, in the, uh, one of the most recent revivalists in the Second Great Awakening, said it this way. He said, if God commands you to do something, you must do it. And if ever it is to be done, you are the one who must do it. This is Charles Finney talking about our response to God's gospel. He says, if God commands us to do something, he expects you to do it. And if ever it is to be done, you must be the one to do it. Finney did not think that you needed the additional work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's gospel to you in order to respond to it. So it amounts to human reason, human rational function that separates those who believe from those who don't believe. Let me uh, put it to you this way. Uh, verse 22 concludes not with a statement uh, or anyone who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom appropriately responds to the Son. It's not what it says. It says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the, the thing that moves the needle between someone being saved and not being saved is not the person themselves, it is ultimately the son who chooses to reveal the father. The choice, the, the thing that moves the needle, is the son. When I was a chemistry teacher, I labored over teaching my students the difference between a dependent and an independent variable. Potentially, uh, you've, you've had a class where you had to listen to this, and I, I apologize if this is going to bore you a little bit, but uh, my students would make, uh, made, would make graphs and they would get the x and the y axis wrong because they were putting the independent variable on the wrong axis. There's all kinds of stuff going on. They just didn't understand the difference. But if, if you're doing a simple experiment, right? Like let's say you're trying to see how, how big plants can grow over a course of time. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to keep everything the same. You're supposed to change one variable, right? Let's say 
how much water you give the plants, or what kind of soil you put them in, or what kind of sunlight they get. But the dependent variable is the thing you yourself change. The independent variable is the, th is the outcome that is different. Okay? If we were to think about this in terms of salvation, the independent variable is whether you're saved or not saved. The dependent variable, the thing that changes that thing, is the son's self-revelation or lack of self-revelation. The thing that moves the needle is the, is the son's self-disclosure of his gospel to his people. Uh, and, and all of these means, his word, his people, and his spirit moving in the hearts of those people. That's the thing that moves the needle from darkness to light. It is not human reason. That's not the dependent variable. It's not human wisdom or cunning. He's already excluded that earlier. It's not any of those things. It's, it's, it's the power struggle that's going on. Because as, as God looks across the world, this is Romans 3, all of the world is in bondage to sin. Uh, in, in the days of Noah, the way that God said it in Genesis 6, is as God looks over the whole world, man was only ever doing evil continuously. This was the constant state of mankind. And so if God was to come and sh simply share his gospel, share his message, what happens in the days of Noah? No one responds to the message. Noah and his family are the only ones who are saved. No one repents. No one believes. Why? Because it's not a matter of information. It's not a matter of human reason or understanding. It's a matter of spiritual darkness and enslavement. And this is the, the thing that is so beautiful in the New Testament. This is so, the thing that's so amazing about Christ's ministry is that in his ministry, the Holy Spirit abides with his people, abides with his church, abides with his word to reveal himself to the nations. This is the thing that Satan has been enslaved in the crucifixion and he no longer has the power to deceive the nations. He has been bound up in chains. He no longer has the power to lead people astray because Christ Jesus is the one who is seated on the throne. So Jesus is the one who now is in control of whether people see or don't see. Satan no longer has dominion over the world in that sense. That's the thing that's so marvelous in the gospel in the New Testament, that people are no longer deceived by Satan in the way that they once were, because the gospel can actually affect change in the world. And that kind of brings us to this concluding statement where Jesus turns to the disciples and gives them a brief comment. And he says these words, turning to the disciples, he says privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, which Luke has been talking about for a number of chapters now. The coming of the kingdom of God is the very thing which the prophets of old foretold. Isaiah talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. Moses talked about it. They were all talking about the kingdom of God. David longed for God's kingdom to be established. They're all talking about the same thing. But none of them, except for this generation for the first time, have seen this kingdom tangibly express itself on earth. None of them have seen it. Prophets and kings of old have desired to see these things and they have not seen it. But you, you disciples, you have seen it. And blessed are the eyes who see what you see because they're seeing things that are cosmically shifting the outcome of the world. They're shifting the, the position and the power of Satan. They're shifting cosmic realities. And no one else has seen this before. The kingdom of God going forth is something that all the prophets foretold, all the kings longed for, all the Israelites pleaded and looked forward to, the kingdom of God being established. And Jesus is preaching and proclaiming this kingdom by his spirit, through his miracles, by his own words, and by the words of his apostles and disciples. This is the thing that they're talking about. Uh, everyone prophesies it. Even if you think about Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, he prophesies the coming of the kingdom of God, the little rock which will smash the statue, and it will be established, and it will one day be found to be a mountain, and it will be victorious over all these empires. Well, how does that rock come? Uh, and in what days does it come? It comes in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God smashing all other earthly powers, being established, and never again to be destroyed. The kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom, the dominion that is an everlasting dominion, and a rule and reign which cannot ever be broken. And these are what the disciples are seeing. This is the amazing thing. The kingdom of God is miraculous, it's profound, and it's ultimately, we would say, the solution to the power struggle. So you've seen that the disciples are coming forward and they're reflecting on their victory over the demons. And you see Jesus uh, rejoicing in God because of the victory that the disciples have had. And now you see that Jesus is turning to them and telling them, hey, by the way, this victory right here, this victory over the kingdom of darkness, is what everyone for all history has been longing for. It's the thing that I promised back in the Garden of Eden, that uh, the serpent will bruise the heel of my, the seed of Eve, 
but he will crush the serpent's head. This is the victory which has been proclaimed from all generations, which everyone has longed for, but you get to see it start. You are the ones who get to see it happen. And can we say that thousands of years after this happening, having grown up with this teaching, having access to it readily, having the gospel preached regularly, would you not say that we are in a better position than these who have seen the kingdom? We have not only seen the establishment of the kingdom, we have seen the growth of the kingdom, the propagation of the kingdom. We've actually seen the rule and reign and the victory of the kingdom of God over the force of darkness for about the last 2,000 years in the church. This is the thing that all the Israelites longed to see. None of them saw it, but blessed are your eyes who have seen these things and have observed them taking place. This is the hope that the gospel points to. This is the hope of Christ, not only that there is a, an option to repent and believe, but that there's the actual power to repent and believe. That power is not by looking internally at yourself and saying you need to be more disciplined and you need to deal with your sin better. That power is by looking to Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous, who stands in our place, who actually uh, neuters the power of sin and cuts it off. And he allows us his righteousness. He gives it to us. And he allows us to walk in it, to grow in it. He gives us his spirit to keep us in it. These are the things that you and I are blessed to behold and partake in. We have seen it established. We have known it. We have tasted it. And if you persist in this, this is the very means by which you overcome the forces of darkness. Christian, if you ever think about the, the daily struggle of your life, the daily engagement with sin, I think so often we can become tempted to think we need to be more self-disciplined, more, uh, more uh, resolved in our action against sin. Possibly we can think if we just read more scripture, we got more of it in our heads, that would be the solution. Those are all good efforts. Discipline is good. Memorizing scripture is good. But it is not the thing that will break the power. The only thing in all history that has ever broken the power of darkness is the gospel. It's the whole reason Jesus came. So when you are discouraged, downtrodden, when you are at the losing end of the fight, remember this, that the power over sin, over Satan, and over his forces is not in your information, it's not in your understanding, it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he has been pleased to reveal to all who know him and who love him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word, uh, particularly for your self-revelation. Lord, we know that in the whole course of human history, were it not for your intervention, the outcome would be so different. Were it not for you to step onto the scene and to uh, imbibe human life and to have victory over sin and to stand in our place, uh, we would be lost. It's not as though we don't know enough. It's not as though we don't know your law and what we ought to do. It's not as though we don't know you as creator. Uh, we know all these things. Uh, but in our sin, uh, we reject all of it. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who has stepped into our place, stepped onto the scene, who has won the victory and dealt the fatal blow to Satan and to his forces. And the victory that it was his, he passes on to us so that we may walk in it, so we may partake in it, so that we may taste and see all of the goodness of God in that salvation. Lord, how marvelous are your ways, how unsearchable are your thoughts. We are amazed by your goodness. And we pray as we continue now in our time of worship that you would help us to uh, praise your name Fittingly, uh, we would praise you rightly for who you are because you are a good God. You love your people. And Lord, we thank you that you have been pleased to save us as a people for yourself. Pray this in your name. Amen.